Right. Marvelous. Well, I, uh, both Carol and I missed you folks while we were out. We visited uh, three separate churches, and uh, there's no place like home. Glad to be back here. And actually, uh, we visited the church where I was baptized after I uh, became a believer in college some two or three years ago. So it was, uh, it was uh, good to be back. Actually, it was kind of amazing because uh, the guy who led me to the Lord is still there. He, uh, he leads their uh, worship uh, team and uh, had a very significant college ministry for a number of years. And uh, I didn't know that he knew we were going to be there. But he, uh, he said, uh, go and greet Carol and David. They come back once every 25 years. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so that was kind of neat. There were actually a few, few families that were still there. We left that church over 20 years ago. So... It was kind of fun to go back. Brother Vincent, thank you for uh, ministering the Word to uh, God's people. And uh, appreciate your faithfulness and your scholarship. And I trust that you all profited from that uh, time of teaching that he brought. So significant an issue with regard to the apostles of the church. Well, this morning we're uh, we're going back to uh, our study on ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. We, uh, when I left, um, we had finished talking about leadership. That was the last message, hardworking men, with regard to the issues of leadership. And we had covered a lot of ground this uh, past summer and into the spring with the area of leadership. Uh, you know, who can be leaders biblically? What are their qualifications? How are they to be uh, examined and uh, selected and so forth? And so we have dealt with a lot of that. What I want to do to finish this a series is to take a look at uh, some specific churches. I want to evaluate some individual churches to see what they do well and what they do poorly that we might learn from their example. But in order to do that, we're not going to look at any churches uh, in the Upland area for sure. And we're not going to rely on human wisdom or knowledge to do this, what we're going to do is we are going to, to uh, rely on the uh, absolute knowledge and penetrating gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ as He evaluates seven particular churches, real historic churches that existed about 2,000 years ago. And there is much that we can learn as we take the time to see how Christ evaluates His church. Open your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, page 1225 in those pew Bibles. And this, uh, I had originally intended for this to be uh, one, but uh, you know how those things go, so uh, it's going to be a two-parter this morning. But I have prepared a handout for you, a little bit different than in prior days. It has a chart in it, and so you'll need to turn it sideways to, in order to use that chart. I thought a chart might be just a good way of keeping track of of these seven churches as we work our way through the text of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 over the next number of weeks. So uh, the the chart will be the same each week. Of course, the name of the church at the top will be different. So here we are in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, let me just give you some background here. It's really difficult to dive in the middle of a text but without some background. So let me just provide some of that this morning for you. 
These seven letters of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 were delivered to seven real historical churches, churches that existed at the very end of the first century. And the, uh, the means of, of delivery was by hand, and it would have followed a circular clockwise route beginning at Ephesus near the coast and then moving inland and around in a big circle ending to the uh, east in uh, Laodicea. So there would be these seven cities. Many wonder why Jesus picked these seven churches out of all the possible churches, certainly of of Asia Minor, which is a modern-day Turkey. And one, uh, one scholar suggests, and I think there's probably some truth to this, that these seven cities were actually uh, distribution centers along the Roman postal route. And so that, uh, that being a historic reality, that makes a lot of sense as to why Jesus would select out these particular churches. These churches were somewhere between 30 and 50 miles apart, and each city was a distribution part, a distribution center on the Roman postal route. These, uh, these messages or these letters to these churches uh, are, as I say, to a historic church. They are historic churches, and they are uh, circular in nature, meaning that all seven churches were to read all seven letters. The letters were addressed to a particular church and spoke to, a, to the issues of a particular church, but they were for the benefit of all the churches. And you can see that, for example, in um, verse 7 here of chapter 2. Just let your eyes drop there. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. You see that. And so these messages are for churches. Plural. That is, they are for all seven of the churches and By inspiration of the Spirit, they're not just applicable to seven historic churches and seven circumstances. They are applicable to the church of all ages and to this church in this age. So these letters are for the benefit of Foothill Bible Church as well. There is much we can learn as we go through these seven letters over the next number of weeks. Beyond that, we need to talk at least briefly about the Apostle John, for he is the, the scribe here who records these letters. They are dictation. You know, look at verse 1. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Okay, there, is, there is grammatically an imperative verb there. Jesus is dictating to the Apostle John just exactly what he wants him to say. So it is the evaluation of Christ dictated to John for the benefit of these historic churches. Now, a little background. The Apostle John is the last living apostle. He left, uh, most uh, believe he left uh, uh, Jerusalem sometime during the Neronian persecution. That is the persecution under Nero from AD 64 to 68. And so uh, during that persecution, that Roman persecution, both Paul and Peter were uh, executed by Rome John is now the last living apostle, being probably the youngest apostle early on. And he uh, has, um, has left Jerusalem to escape the persecution. And uh, he has now traveled to Ephesus. So John traveled to Ephesus and he remained there about 30 years. 
we think he probably went to Ephesus after Timothy left. You remember Paul told Timothy, I've left you here at Ephesus to put in order you know, things that remain. And so Paul left Timothy, his faithful companion, for about a year and a half to pastor the church in Ephesus that Paul himself had pastored. And then after Timothy left, sometime around A.D. 67, then probably that's when John traveled to Ephesus himself. Not to pastor the church, but to take up residence in Ephesus and to give apostolic oversight to all of those churches in what is called Asia Minor, or as I said, Turkey. So this is uh, the background of the Apostle John. He is the last living apostle. And by this time, he is pretty old himself. We believe this letter was written around A.D. 96, so right up at the end of the first century. Okay? And near the end of his long life, the Apostle John is exiled to an island called Patmos. It is an island located in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Ephesus. It was a Roman penal colony. It was a small island, uh, some say about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. It was very rocky. And it was there that they would exile political prisoners. And John himself was exiled to this island in Uh, of Patmos, he said, for the testimony of Jesus Christ because of his preaching of the gospel of Christ. He was not executed as uh, the rest of the apostles, but he was exiled. And so there at the end of his life as a very old man in exile on this barren rock island. He is worshiping, it tells us, chapter 1. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was worshiping God on a Sunday morning in some setting, maybe all by himself, we don't know, but in any case, he had an ecstatic trance. God came to him, Christ came to him in a trance, and he gave him this book of Revelation. Let me read for you just the first couple of verses here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. Stop right there. (coughs) In your handout, in the chart, I have given you five different facets, five facets that we can look at or, or use as an outline to, uh, to go through Christ's evaluation of each of these churches so that we will understand for what makes a good church. The first facet that I want to look at you with I've called the command. So the first facet of the evaluation is the command, and it is here in verse 1, and it is a, a simple command to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Jesus is commanding John to record something. And he's telling him that he is to address it to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, John is to, is to record, uh, according to chapter 1, and you can turn back there if you'd like, verse 11 and verse 19. He is to write that which he has seen, that which is, and that which will, uh, will be, that which is to come. That is a simple outline of the book of Revelation. That which uh, he has seen, that which is, and that which is to come. That which he has seen would be uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. 
the, the, uh, the, the vision of the ascended Christ. And then, uh, and then into uh, verses 9 and following down to 18 would be that which he has seen. Then he is to write that which is, which are chapters 2 and 3. The present state of the church. Write that which is. And then beginning in chapter 4, that which will be. So we're going to concentrate on that which is. All right? We're looking at that which is. Jesus' penetrating analysis and evaluation of His church. We want to know exactly what Christ thinks about His church. And He's going to reveal it for us here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, we're immediately... Uh, and by the way, this, uh, this formula goes, uh, continues, right? Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, and so forth. So, we need to ask and answer a basic question, and that's who is the angel, right? Who or what is the angel to whom John is supposed to write? The word angelos, uh, translated here angel, it means in its most basic form, messenger. It could legitimately be translated to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? It means messenger. It can mean a divine messenger. It's used that way over in Luke chapter 1, verse 11. It can be a human messenger, Luke chapter 9, verse 52. The majority of the uses in the New Testament of angelos do refer to the, to the spirit world, to the divine messenger, to an angel as you and I, an unfallen angel as you and I would know it. But ultimately it's context that drives the translation of the word. If the New American Standard has translated it angel here, I would preferred if they would have translated it messenger and left it more ambiguous because I think that's a better fit. But in any case, I, uh, there are two major ways of seeing this, whether it is, a, it is a, an angelic messenger or whether it is a human messenger. Who is Jesus speaking to? Now notice, let your eyes go up to verse 20, chapter 1, as we kind of resolve these early issues. Uh, chapter or uh, verse 20 rather chapter 1 it says as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches so without going too far back into chapter 1 we've also got these seven stars that are held in the hand of Christ and uh, Jesus tells John that they are angels of the seven churches so we have stars we have angels of these churches, we have messengers, all one in the same uh, individual. But who is this individual? Many believe that it is that they are unfallen angels, that there is actually a guardian angel for each church. That is a popular view. And so that John is writing uh, at the direction of Christ to a guardian angel of each particular church. Now, there's some problems with that view that make it, in my opinion, untenable. And uh, they're twofold. Let me just try to give them to you real quick. First is that the line of communication is, is a little goofy, if that's true. Because then what you've got going on is you've got communication from heaven to earth to heaven to earth. You've got, you know, you've got the ascended Christ communicating with an earthly being, John, who's communicating with an angelic being, an angel, who's communicating back to an earthly entity called the church. So that just doesn't seem like a very good way to communicate. Beyond that, and probably more important to that, is the grammatical construction here. It is second person singular pronouns that prevail throughout these chapters. 
Okay? So when it says, for example, I know your deeds. Verse 2, do you see that? I know your deeds. He is talking to an individual. He is not talking, he's not using the, uh, the plural pronoun, he's using a singular pronoun. So he is including the messenger in both the commendation and the condemnation that comes upon a number of these churches. That, for me, tips it over and to say that I don't think it can be an unfallen angel. I don't see how an unfallen angel can be subject to some of the, the um, devastating criticism that occurs in these seven letters. All right? when, uh, even in this one alone where he says uh, that uh, in uh, uh, verse 4, I have this against you, second person singular, that you have left your first love. I just don't see how an unfallen angel could be accused of such things. So for me, it works better if I understand this to be a human messenger. That this is addressed to a human messenger. Some think it's perhaps uh, just a human representative of the church. Others that it's one of the elders of the church. I will uh, stick my neck out far enough and I will say that I think it's addressed to the pastor of the church. I think that Jesus is addressing these churches through the pastor of the church. And it is His commendation, His correction, and by extension, the church as a whole. So that's, uh, I've, uh, there I've said it, and I've committed myself to it, and if others can come later and tell me why they don't think that works. But I'm, my understanding to the verse 1, to the angel of the church, to the messenger of the church, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right. Now, let me go a little more background here because it's worth it. And that's to talk about the city of Ephesus itself. That we will do that in each of these letters. We will talk about the city in which the church resides because it, the, it affects the interpretation and understanding of what's going on here. And, and believe, it, uh, believe me, beloved, that the society in which a church exists does affect the church to one degree or another. So let's talk about Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is a large metropolitan city here in the ancient world. It is, the, it is also the center of Christian activity for that part of the world. It was one of three centers of commerce in the Near East. It was a very significant city. It had a good natural harbor and it had a number of roads that, that progressed through the city. And therefore, it was right on the cutting edge of all the latest in philosophy, all the latest in political ideas, all the, all the latest in science and art and so forth. All the cultural um, developments of the ancient world would pass through the city of Ephesus, either coming in by ship into the port or passing through along the trade routes. So Ephesus was on the cutting edge. Ephesus knew what was going on. Ephesus would be like Los Angeles. It would be that kind of a city, a cosmopolitan city on the cutting edge. This is the city of Ephesus. It is also uh, a city of tremendous debauchery because it was the headquarters of the, or contained the massive temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this was a temple in which the, there were a thousand prostitutes that were in the employ of the temple. It was Prostitution was very much part of the pagan culture of Ephesus. And so it was a very debauched city as well as being a very learned city and a very prosperous city. The church was founded here probably by Priscilla and Aquila during Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 18, verse 26. 
The Apostle Paul himself pastored there for three years. During his third journey, the city was, uh, was uh, a renowned church, or the church in the city was a renowned church planting center. There were, the gospel went out far and wide from the church in Ephesus. They planted many, many churches. Many disciples were made and sent out from the church at Ephesus, Acts 19, verse 10. And so there's much about this church that, that would be enviable. Beyond that, these Christians were red hot for Christ, or at least at their early stages they were. When the church was founded, the gospel burned red hot in these people's hearts. We are told uh, in Acts again, in uh, Acts uh, chapter uh, 19, I believe it is, that uh, the disciples came forward and they voluntarily burned their magic books. There were a lot of satanic magic going on and those that were converted, that were converted out of that, came forward and threw their magic books onto the bonfires, valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. In today, a piece of silver being a day's wages, so in today's dollars, maybe $5 million or more worth of, of personal treasures that were of the devil that went, upon conversion were sacrificed to the flames of the bonfire. So this, these people burned red hot. They were so committed to Christ and so evangelistic in their passion that they turned the city upside down. And and you remember that Demetrius had a big problem with them, and that is that the idol trade, they made little silver trinkets of of, uh, Diana's temple, the uh, business was falling off. They were converting so many people from idolatry that they weren't selling enough trinkets, and uh, and there were riots in this city that even drove the Apostle Paul out. Later on, after Paul left, he warned the church, Acts chapter 20, that wolves will arise from within, right? False teachers will come up from within. And that indeed happened in the church there. So he sent back Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And he said, you go back there and you pastor the church, you train up new leadership, and you squelch these false teachers that are arising within the church. So there was a, a constant threat of false teachers. The reason is, I believe, is this was a strategic church. This was a church that was right on the edge and doing things for Christ. And therefore, it was under intense pressure of spiritual warfare. The enemy goes after those who are pushing against him, not those who are asleep at the switch. He needs not bother with them. So the church at Ephesus was under tremendous pressure. The angel, verse 1 again of the church in Ephesus, write to this great historic church, to this church founded on apostolic passion, to this church that was firmly committed to church planting, to this church in which commitment to Jesus Christ was more than just a verbal uh, a nod of the head, but it, was, uh, it affected your life in such a way that you would, you would burn your treasures of the old life. To this church, right. Verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. He who stands or, or walks among the seven golden lampstands, who holds the seven stars, seven stars being the pastors, being the representative of the church itself, and the golden lampstands actually, again, representing those churches. What he's saying is the one who walks among his church, the one who inhabits his church, Jesus Christ who evaluates his church, with his penetrating eyes, he has a message for you, Pastor, and through you to this great church. Verse 2, what is the message? 
It is a message first of accommodation. Accommodation. He has good things to say about them. The omniscient one, the one who moves among the church, the one who knows the church. In fact, that's what he says, right? I know your deeds. Greek verb used here is one uh, that, that of uh, conveying the idea of absolute clearness in what he knows. It's not a growing knowledge. It's an absolute knowledge. The one who knows absolutely what they're all about. The one who knows their hearts, the one who knows the way they think, the one who knows the way they feel, what they want, what they believe. He who knows and sees it all is a commendation for them to begin. Like any good parent, he's about to bring correction, but he's going to begin with some commendation. And he does it in twofold. He commends them for their doctrine and he commends them for their diligence. First, their doctrine. Verse 2, I know your deeds your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. He knows their deeds. He knows their toil. Kapos in the Greek. It's, it's hard work to the point of exhaustion. He knows how hard they are working to oppose false teaching. How much they are persevering in this. Remember back in Acts 20 when Paul left the church, he warned them false teachers would arise. And indeed they did. And he had to send back Timothy to correct the problem. And Timothy did correct the problem. And so this church was on the lookout for false teachers. And they weren't just casually on the lookout. They were persistently on the lookout. They were kapas. They were working hard to ferret out false teaching and to oppose it. To oppose it. And they were doing it through God's holy word. They were like uh, the one John speaks of in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They were testing the spirits. They were, they were evaluating that which was being brought to them as teaching against the word of God, and, that, and they were able to smoke out the false teachers. Now, it's fascinating here, and it sort of intersects something that Vincent said a couple of weeks ago. Notice it says, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. You see that? Those that call themselves apostles. At this particular time, AD 96, the canon of the New Testament is not yet closed. It's missing one book, one piece of writing. In fact, it's missing right? what is being written right now, the book of Revelation. And so as the canon is, is closing up, there is, there is a, a plethora of false teachers that have been let loose on the church seeking to draw the faithful aside unto their own doctrines of demons. And they are claiming apostolic authority. Why? Because it is the apostles who speak for Christ. And so they are claiming to be apostles, but they are ravaging the church. They are, they are teaching all kinds of false doctrine and misleading people and drawing them away. And so John, as the last living apostle, is, is been able and, and mandated to give the waning years of his life to opposing these false teachers. You read John's writings, his, his, uh, his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and here in Revelation itself, and there is a theme that runs through all of them, and it is the opposition against false teaching, against those who claim to be ones who speak for Jesus Christ but are not. 
Go ahead and turn with me to the end of this book, and it's familiar, I'm sure, to you. But notice the way, under inspiration, John closes the final chapter of this final book. Verse 18, chapter 22. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. John is saying, listen, I am the last living apostle. It is only the apostles who speak for Jesus Christ. And it is, and I am closing it down. When I am finished writing this, there is nothing more to say. Jesus has said it all. He has said what He wants said. And it is now through the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God by which these written words speak to the people of God for the centuries until Christ returns. Christ no longer speaks audibly to men. He speaks through His Holy Scriptures written by His holy apostles, John himself being the last one. When John dies, there are no more. And so John says here again, verse 2, I know your deeds, I know your kapas and perseverance that you cannot endure. Evil men, and you put them to the test. Those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and they are found to be false. Notice Jesus is still dictating this to John, and look, look what he calls these apostles who are who are not true he calls them evil men do you see that evil men verse 2 false teaching beloved is um is done by evil men now that's a hard thing to say in the 21st century here in the western world false teaching is the product of evil men it is not just a matter of one's opinion it is not something that is morally neutral It is done by evil men, and they are evil because false teaching murders people's souls. A false teacher is a soul murderer. That's why John says when one comes to your your house, you are not even to let them in. Don't give them a greeting. Don't give them a cup of cold water. And do not allow them in. They are murderers of the soul, and so they are nobody to be fooled around with. They are to be kept away. They are evil men. So much today we think of the false teachers more like cranks or crackpots, right? We'll be skimming through the TV channels and we'll see some crank on there and listen for a few minutes to what they have to say and you'll, you know, you may laugh or you may shake your head and then change the channel. But beloved, it's more than that because there are people listening to that and people absorbing that and it is murdering their souls. It is murdering their souls. They are not clowns. They are not crackpots. They are evil men. The stuff that they write. The stuff that they teach. It's not just trash fit for the dumpster. It is poison. It is poison to a soul. It is a deadly poison. It condemns the soul to an eternal hell without Christ. There is no compromise with false teaching. It must be smoked out and put away, pushed away, exposed for what it is. Look again at verse 2. See this as a commendation, for that is indeed what it is. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. You cannot endure it. You cannot put up with evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. You have found them to be false. Look down to verse 6 where he gives an example of one of these 
false apostles. He says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. One of my prayers is, is that, that God will change me so that I will love the things that He loves and hate the things that He hates. One of the things that God hates is the false teaching. He hates the false teaching. He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, he says in verse 6. In a summary statement, the, the, the Nicolaitans were, uh, were a uh, heretical group that taught a, what's called a, an antinomian lifestyle. That is a licentious, sexually immoral lifestyle. They said it didn't matter what you did with your body. It would not affect your soul. Sexual perversion. And so, Jesus says, I hate that kind of stuff. I absolutely detest it. The church at Ephesus had been instructed by Paul in sound doctrine. They had been warned by Paul. They had been instructed by Timothy. For 30 years, the Apostle John had been watching over them. They were continuing in their good fight. Jude says it this way, Jude 1 verse 4, that they were fighting the good fight against those ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They were fighters in Ephesus. They were fighters. They were doctrinally rigorous. They knew what the truth was and they clung to it tenaciously. Beloved, that kind of fighting is grueling. It is grueling to be constantly fighting doctrinal wars. It, it tires one out. It makes one tired, it, fatigued, want to give up and say, what's the use? And so it requires diligence. And that's the other thing that Jesus commends them for. He commends them for their doctrine and He commends them for their diligence. Verse 3, And you have perseverance and have endured for My name's sake, and have not grown weary. Do you see that? You have not grown weary. You have held out against false teaching. And you have done so regardless of the personal cost. Regardless of how fatiguing it is, regardless of what the personal price you've had to pay, you have held out. You have labored to the point of weariness, yet you have not grown weary and quit. You have endured for My name's sake. Verse 3. Now that particular expression is used twice over in Matthew's Gospel and it talks about someone as a follower of Christ who, who uh, is suffering because of what they believe and they refuse to give in. They refuse to give in. And so that's what's going on here in Ephesus. Jesus is commending the Ephesian church for their unwillingness to give in. That they are fighters. But when the battles come, they're wearying. And believe me, beloved, the battles are more wearying that come inside the church than outside the church. The battles that take the most starch out of the leadership are not the, the fighting the opponents that are outside the church over doctrinal issues. It's fighting those inside the church. That's when it tears your guts out. That's where a strong stand with regard to doctrine can make cost you personal friends and relationships. It can cause uh, your popularity, your influence, your your peace, your fellowship, all of that can have to be sacrificed or may have to be sacrificed to stand firm on sound doctrine. I mean, look down at verse 15 with me. Verse 15 of this chapter. This is addressed to the church at Pergamum. 
Verse 15, it says, Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You see that? They hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There are some in in the church at Pergamum who don't see any problem with the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Yet the Ephesian church knows that it's a wicked heresy. And so immediately you can see the tension, right? Here you've got the members of the church at Ephesus, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, who is holding firm the line on strong doctrine, sound doctrine, and against the heresy of the Nicolaitans. But just a couple of churches, a couple of cities away in another church, they're allowing such things to happen. What do you think that does to interchurch fellowships? Hmm? What about at the local denominational luncheon? When uh, the pastor of the church at Pergamum and the pastor of the church at Ephesus show up, what do you think they've got to say to each other? What about if you've got family members? Some live in the church at, you know, in Ephesus and go to the church at Ephesus. Some live in Pergamum, go to the church at Pergamum. They get together for you know, Christmas dinner and they begin to talk, right? Now I can hear the conversation. How come you guys are so tightly wound? How is it you're so rigid? Can't you be a little more flexible, huh? What about Christian unity? Are you willing to sacrifice Christian unity just to hold on to your doctrinal distinctives? And the pressure comes. And the weariness comes. And the desire to say, well, maybe doctrine is divisive. Maybe we are too tightly wound here. Maybe we are cutting it too close. We ought to just, you know, kind of live and let live. They love Jesus. We love Jesus. You know, that's, that's all it takes, right? Not according to Jesus. What does he say? Verse 6. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Beloved, I want to hate the things that God hates. I want to love the things that God loves, but I want to hate the things that God hates. And so at the local denominational luncheon, we can't sit next to each other. We can't have good table fellowship together. We can't pretend that there's nothing going on. Doctrine does divide. There's no way around it. The truth divides. The gospel divides, does it not? You are either of darkness or you are of light. Doctrine does divide. Jesus commends them here for their diligence. This church is unwilling to waffle regardless if it costs them big time. They're willing to pay the price going on today in this country. If you're at all aware of what's going on, there are a number of pastors and churches who are risking everything, risking losing everything when they stand firm against gay marriage or the ordination of homosexuals into the ministry. The denominations, well, I don't know if you know this or not, beloved, but in most cases the denominations hold the titles to the properties. That's how it's done. They also have to hold the pensions of the pastors. And this has happened. This happened 75 years ago or so in this country. In fact, it's the birth of the Bible church movement where men stood firm on the issue of inerrancy of Scripture. And it cost them. It cost them their pensions. It cost their church properties. They would go home on a a Sunday and they would come back the next Sunday and the place would be padlocked and there would be a restraining order and the whole church would have been kicked out of the buildings and the denominations would take them back. There were real you know, penalties, real price to pay. It costs. It costs to stand firm doctrinally. You know, schools like Biola, Moody, 
Dallas Theological Seminary, these schools were birthed out of the Bible church movement. Why? Because all the denominational schools had gone liberal and had been cut off to them, and so they had to start all over again. Stand firm on doctrine. It's expensive. It's expensive personally. It can be expensive financially. It can cost you. It can cost you family relationships. It can cost you friendships. It can cost you your very life. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this section, this commendation in the text? I mean, there's more here, and we'll get to it next week, right? There is a serious correction and condemnation for this church at Ephesus. They don't have it all wired, but they are doing something right. So let me just ask you a few questions, see if we can just drive this home for you this morning. If Jesus were to reveal the results of the inspection of your life in regard to doctrinal purity, how would you fare? How would you fare? Would Jesus commend you for your doctrinal purity, for your faithfulness to the Word of God? Would He commend you? Do you know what doctrines are non-negotiable and why? Do you know what's worth dying for and what isn't? And can you defend them against attack? Have you let the desire for superficial unity with others dull your ability or your willingness to persevere doctrinally? Have you allowed the desire for peace? Let's just all get along, right? Let's just live in peace. Have you allowed that to dull the edge? Or your willingness to persevere doctrinally? Have you unwittingly drunk of the spirit of the age in which anyone who calls themselves a Christian or claims to have been born again is considered to have presented all the evidence necessary to be embraced as part of the family of God? All I've got to say is I'm a Christian. You're a Christian, I'm a Christian. Let's lock arms. I was born again. Really, me too. We must be brothers. Is that all there it is? Is it just some words? Is it just a profession? Doctrine cuts deep. It cuts deep. And sometimes the wounds are painful. It's a serious issue. But it's not alone. Sound doctrine alone is not enough to make a great church or to make a church that will be approved by Jesus Christ. There is way more than just sound doctrine. But it's not less than that. It's not less. You come on back next week and we'll find out by Jesus' evaluation of the Ephesian church, at least with regard to Ephesus, what else is involved. Let me pray. Our Father, what an unpopular message in so many quarters today sound doctrine can really be. Yet, our Father, I thank You by Your grace that sound doctrine is important in this fellowship. That there are many, many men and women boys and girls and, and the leadership of the church who understand the need to cut it straight. 
I thank you, Father, just on a personal note, having visited other churches. I thank you for the privilege that has been granted to me to stand up here week in and week out and to exposit the Scriptures in a slow and methodical way. That I am not restrained to 25 minutes of preaching and three hours of preparation a week. But that through the generosity of your people, I have been given the many, many hours necessary to rightly divide the Word. Our Father, bless us because of our adherence to the truth. But Lord, let us not grow complacent in that alone. For there is so much more that is needful. Help us to see it and help us to reach for it and attain it in Christ's name. Amen.